This is History 605, where we discuss everything from Crazy Horse to cyberspace. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the South Dakota State Historical Society. Welcome to the show. Today on the show, we have Professor David Wolf, who has just released a book, The Savior of Deadwood. But just as a beginning, an intro to, um, to David, David Wolf is an Emeritus Professor of History at Black Hill State University. He has written and taught about the American West for his entire career and has articles and books about Seth Bullock, the Black Hills, and a book on industrializing the Rockies. He taught courses at, at uh, Black Hill State on American history and South Dakota history. Hello, David, and congrats on the book. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Jones. Uh, it's uh, I'm very honored to be here. Um, you know, when you think about Deadwood, uh, it, it never really occurred to me until I was reading the book that uh, the fact that it exists is kind of a miracle, and the title of your book kind of evokes that, a savior and so forth. Uh, Deadwood could have been like any other of the hundreds of mining towns in the West. It could have just burned out very quickly as it came, but but it didn't, and so your book kind of discusses that. Um, why didn't it? That's the question that uh, animates the book, and I was wondering if you could just kind of briefly give a top-line uh, description of what is it that uh, James K.P. Miller and others did that made sure that Deadwood didn't fade away. Well, any any gold town, of course, a town established around the gold rush, particularly Deadwood, which is established around the gold and Deadwood and Whitewood Creeks, has a temporary existence. And there's, the West is littered with former gold towns that disappeared. But then some of them survived. And what did allow them to survive? Some of them survived because they had hard rock mines nearby, uh, such as a homestake and lead. But, but of course, Deadwood could not guarantee it would live off the gold that was found up at the homestake because there was lead and there was Central City and there was all these other towns up there. So it was a very great possibility that Deadwood, once the placer gold disappeared, it would disappear. In fact, after the 1879 fire, uh, some people, the pessimists in the crowd, would say, well, Deadwood's done for. Everybody's moving up the, up the hill or they're moving out. Uh, it, it's time it goes the way of an, any other western boomtown. Mm -hmm. But it didn't uh, disappear. As you said, this is the, the main point of the book. Now, other western towns didn't disappear, and there's a f number of factors that allow towns to survive. As you look at Deadwood, I really think the one animating factor are the people who were engaged in the town, in its economic development, who had bought into its future, who wanted to invest in its future. And Miller was one of them, uh, Bullock to some degree, Harris Franklin was certainly in there, and somebody mentions the book, but not very extensively. Uh, there was a core of people that were in there that invested in the town, worked to save the town. So in this case, it's about people who work. And my argument, as you mentioned, the savior of Deadwood, that Miller really stands out as probably the, the premier activist because underlying his notion about what makes a town like Deadwood survive, you've got to make it uh, an industrial center again. You've got to bring new industries in after the placer gold's gone. And, and he worked to bring in new mining industries to Deadwood. Mm -hmm. And he believed beyond a doubt, like everybody in the West believed beyond a doubt, that railroads were the savior. If you didn't have a railroad, you were dead. If you had a railroad, particularly if you were the end of track, you know, if you were that terminal, you could really prosper. And that's what he worked. And he, because of his efforts, as the book argues, two railroads came to Deadwood, 
both railroads ended in Deadwood in essence, and it became an important railroad hub, a transportation hub, a mining hub, along with being a service center, which it was from day one, and it reinvigorated that, so it really gave Deadwood a new boost in life. Yeah. As the book talks about, Deadwood went several phases of existence, and this was one of its reinventions, as I call it. Mm-hmm. Well, and the first thing that strikes you, too, about the book is how little Deadwood's probably most famous temporary resident is in the book. I mean, Wild Bill Hickok is, you know, shot. Oh, well, that's, that's well, it. he was there six weeks. Well, of course, I mean, he's in the perpetuity. Right. I mean, he, yes. he, you know, as, as, the, as the book tries to point out later on, uh, Flood does and just references but once they started celebrating their heritage in the 20s, mm-hmm. you know, Wild Bill becomes much more important. Yes, And okay. indeed, one of the reinventions of Deadwood came with tourism, add the tourism element starting in the 20s, which, of course, drives Deadwood today. I mean, you go right. to Deadwood. I was in Deadwood yesterday, for God's sake. Yeah. The town is packed brim to brim, and people uh-huh. are oogling over Wild Bill's grave. So he, he was lived there not long, but he sure made a big impact by being buried there. Right. Well— I was wondering if you could kind of set the scene uh, for us, which I think the first couple chapters in your book do really well. The the notion, the Wild West, is a phrase we use to describe lawlessness and so forth. But here, you know, in 1876 in Deadwood, it's not a metaphor. It's it's real. And and the first miners who started the Deadwood Gold Camp, they were in this kind of legal no-man's land. Um, I was oh, wondering if you true. could set the scene for why that is. Well, of course, the... The Black Hills in 1876 were part of the Sioux Reservation. Mm-hmm. Anybody coming in violating the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty were trespassers. Mm-hmm. And really then when you come in as miners or merchants in, in 1876, you have to set your own rules. Now, that does set up uh, the metaphor, as you say, for the Wild West. And, and there was certainly some of that. But what comes through, and this has come through through years I've studied Western history, is that uh, people who like, who came as prospectors, who came as uh, miners, people like Miller, who came, as I described, as a middle-class merchant, he and Bullock are the same ilk, mm-hmm. uh, they really wanted to make money and they needed to survive, so they sought order. And, and, and underlying our notion then is, yes, there is no law per se, there is no enforcement, but there was a drive for order. So there may have been more killings, which there certainly were there in an homeless environment like that. There would be more violence. But there was also this effort to establish order and to punish the wrongdoers and keep a lid on it so people could make their money. So, yes, the place is violent, particularly, you know, you look at that era in Deadwood. The, the, these people are, you know, outside the law. They're violating federal law. Then mm-hmm. uh, once the gold rush is really going hot, and that's the summer of 1876 and 1877, it drags in all the ne'er do wells, the bummers, and all you know mm-hmm. the set. I mean, the Wild Bill Hickox, the Calamity James. They're they're up there hanging out, and the crowd just goes to hell. You know, everything <laughs> goes downhill. Yeah, and and, and uh, so there's lots of trouble, and it really starts. You know, when when Wild Bill is shot, you know, you always get you know, summer of '76. It's all killings and stuff, and Wild Bill is part of the killing in the middle of it. No, you look at it; he's really the second. He's the second guy killed. Yeah. So he's at the tip of it, and then then August of 1876 is a pretty ugly month, uh, and then it dies down in the winters, and a lot of bad people leave in the winter because they don't want to hang around in the winter. Right. And then they come back in 77, and 77 was probably more violent overall, 
it doesn't get the press. The days of 77 is not what we hear about. Right. But then by 78, you know, in, in, in February 77, federal authority comes in, state of, uh, is part of the Dakota Territory, and, and more law enforcement, Bullock's a sheriff, and things start to calm down by 78. Right. Well, and I appreciated the, the discussion, too, in the book about, you know, the sentiment, the feeling in Deadwood, not only are they knowingly trespassing and violating the treaty, but Custer is killed and his whole command is wiped out just, you know, a day's ride away. What oh, was yeah, the yeah. sense that, uh, were they next and, and what was the population in there? Their response was kind of curious in my, my view, but I was wondering if you could kind of explain that. Well, yeah, you know, they were very concerned about it. Uh, of course, they saw, now there were, there's really two large groups of, of natives at this time. There was the the Cheyenne and the, and the Sioux, mm-hmm. who were up on the Montana, the, on the Little Bighorn area, and the Powder River country, which were really non-treaty Indians, non-reservation Indians, and they were up there living where Custer was killed. Then there was the agency Indians who were living around the you know, Spotted Tail and Red Cloud agencies in the northern Nebraska. And, and they knew that a number of the agency Indians had gone up to the Montana country and were involved in the, in the Custer uh, massacre or killing or whatever, and then they knew also that after that, a number of these people are going back to the agencies, including the non-agency Indians. And so coming and going to the Little Bighorn, uh, they either the, the Lakota and the Cheyenne either go to the around the southern end of the Black Hills or the northern end of the Black Hills. And as they came back, as a number of Indians came back across the northern end of the Black Hills, you know, they really did take advantage of or steal livestock and 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 mix it up with the settlers, if you will, that settled around the edge of the Black Hills. Yeah. So there was this real tense time, you know, August 1876, in the summers of 77, as the, as the Indians were coming and going. Uh, this, after, directly after the Little Bighorn, people in Deadwood were convinced that they were next, that, that there was lots of problems, and they really reacted, overreacted, I think, whenever they heard rumors about Indian attacks. Mm-hmm. You know, they grabbed their guns and run and try to, run out the planes and and get into a fight uh so they were always on edge however deadwood itself being in the hills was pretty isolated from that and they, and they but they didn't understand that it seems they they didn't take a lot of comfort in that it was the people that lived in spearfish and in crook city and in okay. rapid city yeah. uh, that bore the brunt of, of indian attacks and really had the problems uh, with these comings and goings of the population right so in, in 1876, what's the population of Rapid City? Oh, very small, a few hundred. Okay. And and so and and they're just developing, and yeah. and you know they, uh, it's it's probably less than a few hundred, and they build a stockade, and and just that one Indian attack, I think, what five, six, seven, eight guys are killed, in that August 20th, 22nd, right outside of Rapid City. Okay. So Rapid City is almost abandoned at that time because it's such a it's on the right out there at the vortex of the trouble. So lots right. of problems in Rapid City in a right. very violent early period. And the response to all this, you know, President Grant's kind of in a tough spot with treaty violators and so forth and wanting to use the Army, but knowing that that's tough to to manage for a number of reasons, politically as well as logistically. Can you go into a little bit about national uh, policy regarding this treaty? And how that well, you know, and the, the treaty said, of course, the uh, whites were not allowed to enter the reservation unless they were agents of the government. Uh, 
Mm -hmm. um, agents of the government is kind of a broad scope. And when uh, the Custer expedition came in in 74, some people say he the, that thousand man troop was agents of the government. So they were here legally. And then and the A's will say, no, that's not the way you read it. Right. Nevertheless, when the when the gold rush started it, up to the army to keep the gold rushers out and they did try to do that when the first group came you know the gordon party mm -hmm. uh, set up camp around the french creek where custer is today uh, the army did come and remove them and they did try to block the trails mm -hmm. but as you mentioned grant was in a tough political spot uh all these people were coming in he recognized the army it was a futile effort to have the army try to keep him out there's frustrations all around and but he knew that he this was a treaty. <laughs> he didn't yeah. want to violate the treaty per se. Right. And so he just told the army to stop enforcing the rules, you know, yeah. stop stopping the rushers. And I guess he thought it would take care of itself. And it, and it did after the after, you know, Custer was wiped out, the momentum to to remove the Black Hills from the Sioux Reservation really picked up. And there was no hope of going back with the gold rush going on and Custer wiped out. Yeah. Uh, by February 1877, it's been removed. Once the Black Hills were out of the Sioux Reservation, then the Army could step in. They could legally then protect the gold rushers, and they could come into the hills and and and, and start, you know, providing that element of safety that they could not beforehand because it would have been a violation of the treaty. Right. That all those people were in there. So. Right, and and just in that span of time from. 1876 to 1877. Now you have General Crook coming into Deadwood and making a speech and kind of yeah. um, helping them, yeah, and, and uh, building their morale up, basically. Even yeah, well, yeah, you know, and that, that's an interesting event and Crook coming through and and they get pretty excited. Of course, that's when they make their big plea for a fort and and uh, right. You know, he doesn't do a lot to protect the hills, but he does calm the whole demeanor down. Cause He's got a large column, and, and the natives know he's coming through, and so they, they back off mm -hmm. uh, while he's, his column is moving through the hills. And, and of course, he, they make, as I said, the people in Deadwood won a fort, and that didn't come until 1878, uh, Fort Meade. And, and even then, when Fort Meade was finally established, it was pretty much after the, the, the worst of the problems, if you will, were over. You know, your sources for the book are largely the newspapers at the time. And I'm wondering if you could... There's a lot of newspapers. Yeah. Uh, the, the Black Hills Pioneer started, I think, that summer of 1876. Is that right? That's, yes, that's correct. And then there's another paper. In the, so when you're going back and, and using these as sources and your, well, your appendix in the back where you're talking about the, the list of murders that occur in those three years from 76 to 1879, and you, you note that even knowing the date of a murder through the papers is difficult because sometimes they conflict or sometimes they may not mention it. Um, so how do you, given that the newspapers of the day are the basis of your sources for the whole book, can you describe kind of how you weigh, weigh how you can use them in the, in the best well, way possible? Well, if, if you look at the sources carefully, the first part of the book, when he's in Montana and early travels, is based on Miller's diary. Okay. And, and and it's nice to have a diary, and I was really hoping I could find a diary that he kept in his Deadwood years. And uh, a friend and I keep looking for it, 
you know, we contact repositories. Do you have anything on diary by J. Sidney Osborne, which he went by for a time, right. or J.K.P. Miller? And it, we still can't find it. Okay. Then, the, then the next part, when we talk about Custer and all that, yeah, there's some newspapers, national newspapers brought in, uh, but then also the, there's a lot of primary sources there. Then in Deadwood, yes, the newspapers are good, but also you got to always collaborate. I always try to check with what John McClintock wrote in his mm-hmm. book on Deadwood. He was a first-hand observer. Okay. Uh, any talent has that reminiscence that's out there. Uh, you know, Seth Bullock wrote that little book that's you know 100 pages maybe that was reprinted later, and even the collections, the South Dakota collections has a, a version of it. Right. And and I've discovered that Bullock was an absolutely wonderful observer and kept careful account, and he's more accurate than many people. Okay. So th- those are kind of the overlying primary observers you see, and there's some others, you know, like Brown and Willard do a great job. They they were worked with Bullock. They knew the, the West. They knew some of these people. But then the newspapers, and it's lucky for me because Miller was so public that he was well recorded in the newspapers. And so in that period when Deadwood is, you know, in its growth period and, and they're worried about economic development, you can really look at the newspapers. And you and you, you just can't assume that the Pioneers write or then there's the Black Hills Daily Times. And luckily for uh, more of an unbiased observation of Deadwood. You can draw on the Minneapolis papers, the Montana papers, mm-hmm. and particularly the New York Times or the New, some New York papers and the Chicago papers had observers in Deadwood, and they brought in a different version. So you have this mix of newspapers that can and really give a good telling, a story that couldn't be brought out through the primary sources. You know, you, you look at the work my, my good friend Wat, uh, Watson Parker did, book on Deadwood, The Golden Years. Mm-hmm. And he didn't use the newspapers very much. He relied on these primary sources that were out there, Andres Guide and those others I've mentioned. And and he consequently made lots of mistakes, things that could have been verified by the newspapers. Because those people who wrote those primary sources have forgotten. Right. Like McClintock was, what, was he 90s, I think, when he wrote his account. And so his memory had undoubtedly faded, and it had because he's got errors in there. So, you know, you, Watson didn't look at the newspapers hardly at all. And you look back and say, wow, Watson, I can't believe you said that because you can just easily see in the paper that that's not the way it happened or it's completely wrong. Right. And so it's lucky to have the newspapers. Now, can you take everything newspapers say straightforward? No, you got to make sure that it, you can, if you can, correspond it with another source. Uh-huh. Uh, that's important. Secondly, you know, you're a historian. I'm a historian of some sort, and you kind of look at it, and does this make sense? Right. There's a lot of stuff in the papers, or even in the primary sources, that people will rely on. Does this make sense? Oral histories are famous for being filled with errors, and that's why you have to check those, just like newspapers. Yep. And you, and you as an historian, have to come back after you've heard that account or you've read that account. Does that make sense? So that's the judgment. That's part of our interpretation as historians to try to draw out what seems the logical, most rational course that happened. Hence, we are charged to some degree to rely on our sense of what human nature and human activities would be like at that time. And that's a a faith the reader has to put in us that we are doing a credible job as, as best. And that's part of our interpretive process. Right, right. Uh, as I was reading the book, I was reminded of several aspects of what makes community. And when when these people are struggling to make sure that life in Deadwood is stable, 
so that they can conduct business, so they can hopefully bring their families to town and so forth and have, a, have that kind of normal life. What were the things that uh, would resonate today that we strive for that, were, that would be similar, even though it might be the technology or the issue might be different, but that, that connectivity? If you were wanted to bring your family to Deadwood back in 1876, 77, 78, you know, and, and Bullock didn't bring his wife till later, uh, Miller didn't bring his family till later, and I think the couple things they were looking for, which people still look for, is a is, is there some kind of sense of order there that they could have their family there without concern? Uh, is there some kind of governance and, and law enforcement? Mm-hmm. And I think today, when you think about moving to a new community or you, you assess a community, one of the things you you read are crime statistics, or you read about what it, what it's like to raise a family there, and, and that's part of it: the the governance, the law enforcement. Secondly, then, as more families started coming, and this is kind of that natural step once you have uh, more women, per se, and families in the, in the community, do you have those things that come with more social order? Do you have churches? Do you have schools? And schools came to debit fairly early, or they hired school teachers, not always successfully, yeah. but they, you know, you start having schools and you get churches and other community activities that go along with it. And, you know, and as I mentioned, these things all kind of go together with, you know, civic improvements and getting better roads and, and, and working, as Miller did, towards better transportation. So those yeah. are the kind of things that made for a community in the West and a community today that I think they looked at that would allow you to bring your family in. Right. And it's also something that I think he's trying, as he goes around looking for investors, what is the investor of the 1870s kind of looking for? Well, I think the number one thing most investors back then wanted a, a good return on their money and as quick as possible, uh-huh. and and you're in a gold rush environment. But uh, nevertheless, I think he was talking about the town would have longevity. Uh, that was a key. It would, once we get the mining industry reestablished there and the railroads in there, particularly the property values will skyrocket. You know, So if you invest in property, you invest in these other ventures, you're going to make money because debt is going to boom. Now, did, since they didn't live there, did they care as much about law and order, schools, churches? No, I don't think so. But they did care about could they make money, and that was the that was a driving ethos at the time, as we know, uh, making money. And I think that that they worried about that. He convinced them that there was that potential for great property value increase. That Deadwood was undervalued at the time and it had great potential. Right, right. And that's the kind of you know it goes on and on. Like when gaming started in in eighty nine. You know, people jumped in to invest because they saw the potential. Always, there was always people at the vortex of, you know, without knowing what was going to happen and potential of gaming, jump in, I'm going to take a chance and see what happens. Like Kevin Costner did, you know, I'm going right. to buy a casino, I'm going to build a Dunbar, I'm going to do this and this and this. And then he's, now he's out of it because it didn't quite work out the way it hoped. And that happened. Some investors in Deadwood didn't work out the way it hoped that Miller brought in. Other investors like Joseph Swift, I believe, came out of Deadwood doing pretty darn well. Right, right. You mentioned 1989 and so forth, but take us back a couple of years, the 1987 fire that um, James K.P. Miller, the topic of your book, uh, had a role in in what burned down. Can you just quickly go through yeah, that? Yeah, that's right. You know, I, I try to make a case uh, there that, of course, he built the syndicate block at the corner of uh, Main and Lee Street in, in 1888, mm-hmm. went up in 1887. It was under construction, opened in 1888. 
as the main city block or building block in that town. It would be the anchor of economic development. It would highlight the fact that Deadwood was an up-and-coming metropolitan city. Uh, along with building the syndicate block, he built a street railway. You know, every town of any quality needs a street railway. He built one of those simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And so he saw that as that part of that economic takeoff that was so critical for his investors to make money and for the town to increase in value. Well, then, you know, Deadwood faltered in the late 20th century as, you know, the homestake downsized and the mines and railroads pulled out of Deadwood and were just relying on tourism in the in the 20th century. And so that's when the Deadwood You Bet Committee took charge and said, well, if we bring gaming back to Deadwood, bring gambling in, we'll have a new burst of life and a, and a, and a new era will come to Deadwood. And they had to convince the voters of South Dakota to vote to change the Constitution to do that. Mm-hmm. And it might have been a difficult charge to do, except in 1987, the syndicate block caught fire, the major block that Miller had built to reinvigorate the environment or the economy in 1888. It burned in 1987, almost 100 years later. And luckily, uh, Dave Larson and, and Mary Dunn, the, the owners of the Adams block, which is two blocks away, had a four-story building. They, they filmed the fire from the top story of their building. Oh, wow. uh, took a video recording of it. Yeah. So the You Bet Committee, which they were involved with, uh, took the images of that and ran these statewide commercials saying, you know, you need to vote for gaming in Deadwood as the town burns. There won't be anything left unless we get it. And it was a very poignant ad, yeah. a very compelling selling point, which then did, I'm sure, help many people uh, sway many people's votes to vote for gaming. So you can say that it helped really helped turn the corner to bring what Deadwood is today. So I like to think that the syndicate block that Miller built had two roles in bringing new eras in Deadwood, when it opened in 88 and when it burned in 87. Hmm. Well, good stuff. Um, well, David, thanks for joining us today, and uh, thanks for being on the show, and congratulations on the book. I hope well, it thank does you. really well. And folks, if you're interested in that, you can go to the um, South Dakota Historical Society Press website and buy a copy. We'd appreciate that. Well, I hope they do. Well, thank you for the visiting. It was a good chat, and uh, you have a good rest of your day. You too. Thanks. So thanks to our sponsor, the South Dakota Historical Society Foundation, and our partner, the South Dakota Public Broadcasting. But most importantly, thanks to you, the listener of this show. As always, if you like the show, please share it with friends and help us get the word out. The South Dakota Historical Society can be found on the web at history.sd.gov, and we'd appreciate you checking us out. Now go do some history.